We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by regular commentator, Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And News Lens editor, Daphne Lee. Hi, everyone. Tonight, we'll be discussing an anti-infiltration bill passing a third reading amid protests, a presidential debate and some clips of several members of the campaign teams talking, which we will debate, press freedom and fake news, environmental groups rallying for action against air pollution, as Kaohsiung is once again voted the island's most polluted city, and Mr Brown Coffee set to close several stores due to a drop in sales, and that comes after Starbucks closed some stores and is raising questions about the coffee shop trends possibly dying here in Taiwan. But we'll begin with the sad news that authorities have grounded 52 Black Hawk helicopters following the crash this Thursday of one of the helicopters in New Taipei's Ulai district. Now, Chief of General Staff Shen Yiming and seven other officers were killed in the incident, and they included the helicopter's pilot, co-pilot and chief engineer. Now, five other people were injured, and the army says that it's carrying out inspections of its fleet of 30 Black Hawk helicopters to check for possible faults in the helicopter's dynamic radar and control systems as well as with the fuselage structure. The Air Force has grounded its 14 Black Hawk helicopters and the National Airborne Service Corps says that it's suspended training operations with its eight Black Hawk helicopters. Now, officials are still investigating the cause of the crash, but it has raised more questions about, well, training and equipment, Brian. Uh, that's right. And so this has raised questions about, for example, the use of military hardware from that is purchased from the U.S. Um, Black Hawk helicopters were purchased from the U.S. in 2010. It was a quite a large trade deal at the time, which occurred under the Ma administration. And I think this might actually become a talking point for the KMT in the upcoming elections um, because of the fact that the KMT has been claiming that the Tsai administration, the DPP, has been purchasing uh, arms from the U.S., which is not actually very useful and expensive. The U.S. is offloading its unwanted equipment on Taiwan. And these purchases under, occurred under the Ma administration, but I think it still might become a talking point. Um, we have questions about military safety as well and to what extent it's being maintained. Yeah, so uh, I think Taiwan did the right decision to just call off her election campaign for three days immediately. And then so now all she has to do is to replace the personnel immediately and then comfort the public. And then, uh, but the KMT is actually not going to attack her right about now because Han Guoyue has also canceled his com- campaign for two days. Um, I think KMT is going to see what Tsai Ing-wen is going to do with the public reaction and then decide on whether to attack her or not for it because it might backfire if the KMT is going after her in a time of loss and then people are actually panicking about it. Right, and we'll move on from that because, of course, the crash is still under investigation. Now, lawmakers this Tuesday passed the government's anti-infiltration bill. Now, the bill criminalises political activities backed by hostile foreign forces such as China and cleared its third reading after lawmakers conducted a clause-by-clause review of the 12-article Act. Now, passage of the Act, though, came amid protests by the KMT in opposition to its contents and other political parties and business groups also criticised it. The government says the bill complements existing law to prevent hostile forces from intervening in the island's democratic political system or influencing national security through infiltration sources. The DPB has also been stressing that the bill will not impact law-abiding Taiwanese citizens living in China. However, this didn't stop former President Ma Ying-jeou from describing passage of the anti-infiltration bill as a shameful day in the constitutional history of the Republic of China and he described it as being the equivalent of restoring martial law. Former New Taipei Mayor Eric Ju says he believes 
the bill could be used for political purposes and he went on to describe the legislation as a bad example of democracy. While business groups have raised concerns over the possible negative effects on cross-strait economic exchanges following passage of the bill, with the chairman of the General Chamber of Commerce saying that China is one of the most important markets for many Taiwanese exporters and they may be forced to stop meeting with their Chinese counterparts due to concerns they may be in violation of the law. And the National Association of Small and Medium-Sized Enterprises told reporters that the association's members are worried that the law could result in their being forced to limit their activities in China. So, Brian, is it a return to martial law? And as the China Times screamed in its headline, (laughs) is it the closure of cross-strait ties or is it simply a law which will amend and help other laws to stop China infiltrating Taiwan. I think it's not surprising that KMT has really leveraged on this issue. Um, the KMT has been claiming throughout the Thai administration that the Thai administration is carrying out a great terror, worse than the white terror. And so claiming that the, the Thai administration will criminalize any form of exchange with China um, goes with the KMT's claims around this, uh, around this uh, claiming that the, there's political persecution. Um, I think also the KMT is really emphasizing that uh, pro-China ties, pro-economic ties are the way to go. And so, again, just trying to raise fears about this, this fits with general KMT's uh, election strategy. Um, on that point, though, I feel like this bill is actually, it's passed very late in the election cycle. Will it actually be able to do anything to combat Chinese interference? I actually don't know. Right. It's actually a symbolic gesture on the DPP's end, because right now passing this bill is not going to have any actual influence on this election. But um, the KMT has used this as a, an opportunity to call it a witch hunt um, legislation. So it might just have backfired on the DPP as well for it to for the KMT as a point of attack. And also the, defini- the definition in the legislation is very unclear because you can just define any funding or donations as Chinese capital. And sometimes that Chinese capital doesn't come strictly from China, but it can just through a shell company. So how do you define who is actually a criminal and who is a law-abiding citizen? So that also also kind of instill fears in the society. And how are you going to run a Taiwanese business now um, living in fear that, oh, there's this bill that either the KMT and DPP are going to use after they win the election. And Brian, of course, people have said that it it will hurt people in China. And people have also argued that, well, surely they didn't need the law in the first place because they already had laws to stop this type of thing anyway. I think it's probably true, actually. I think that just the uh, provision of the, the, the bill actually are not very strong. Uh, the punishments in the bill, which uh, stipulate fines and imprisonment of up to five years in jail, for example, um, that is actually not probably going to deter people that are already carrying on, for example, uh, activities aimed at influencing elections. I mean, oftentimes they're ideologically driven. Um, I think this is not going to deter them from those risks. And so I think a lot of it is actually it is, it is a political stunt. Um, I also don't think the DPP will actually push very hard on this issue because of the fact that it's afraid of being accused of political persecuting its enemies. Um, one notes that the people that the high profile cases in which people have been excused of espionage, uh, such as, for example, Wang Pingzhong of the New, Par- New Party, he is actually still free and he's still um, basically an active participant in political life in Taiwan. I think the DPP won't actually push very hard on this, uh, this issue. Yeah, and the punishment is actually pretty low. Um, it's punishable by up to five years, and then I think around 300,000 300, US or mm. something like that. So it's, it actually doesn't really do anything in terms of punishing the people who violated the law. But then to like backtrack, the law doesn't even define clear enough that who's going to actually be a criminal. 
I also actually wonder if is, is the DPP really trying to provoke a response from the KMT in order to uh, make the KMT look worse? Because then the KMT, by claiming that there's no need for such a bill to combat Chinese infiltration, that furthers the link between China and the KMT in the minds of voters. I think this might be just an electoral strategy. But that, why do you think they passed it? I mean, it was obviously a big stink about passing it, and they insisted it was passed by the end of December. Mm. I mean, why was this rush? It's actually it's quite interesting that Tsai introduced the bill so late. Uh, it came up basically in mid-December, I believe, on December 15th at a campaign rally for the first time. And the manner in which she raised it was very unusual. It was a response to a random shout in the audience that, you know, passed something to combat Chinese infiltration and just said that, well, we're going to pass the anti-infiltration bill by the 31st. And this had been talked about for years and years beforehand between the DPP and other pan-green parties, particularly the Taiwan State Building Party. Um, but then it's, it is a question to me why it's it's so rushed. I don't actually think the Tsai administration is really hoping to combat Chinese infiltration through this. It was using this as a political stunt. But then now that this law is passed and this issue is supposedly settled, that could actually prevent uh, further attempts down the line to actually combat Chinese infiltration. It might not be effective, uh, as effective down the line. And of course, Daphne, certain KMT lawmakers and members of the opposition are claiming that the law could be used by the government to persecute opposition parties. Um, yeah, I think that can definitely be true, but... It also depends on who's going to win this election uh, in the upcoming cycle. So actually, the KMT can also use the law against the, D- the DPP because of the vague language. So right now, because the DPP passed the law, so then the KMT gets the talking points. But then actually, because the language is so vague, so any majority party can just use it against the other one. And it's not just against um, government officials, right? It's also against media outlets that could be... Um, backing some kind of political figures or businesses that, that pro- provide funding to the political parties. So um, it's actually a pretty widespread law that can cover um, all of society, not just the government officials. I think it was Brian China was very vocal about it. Um, yeah, that's right. It's not, it's not surprising that China would react strongly against it and again claim that the DPP is just simply criminalizing political dissent, uh, which is, of course, a hypocritical from the Chinese government. Uh, the KMT has brought up a few times, though, that actually even DPP officials such as William Lai, Chen Zhu, and Frank Nsia have visited China, actually, to conduct exchanges. And so it claims that, again, like this, this law should also apply to the DPP. I mean, that's, that's the claim so far. I also do wonder, actually, if um, a KMT administration was in power, would it actually be able to use this law as a way to actually target the DPP itself? Um, I mean, the DPP is probably in a rush to push it through before, uh, for example, the possibly of a uh, uh, losing its legislative majority. However, it's it is a question then: what, what would happen if a KMT uh, legislator is in power and this this law exists? Well, wouldn't they scrap it? They claim that actually. I mean, Han claims that he will reverse it, but I think there there are also ways to maybe use it for their own advantages. Well, there you go. Anyway, this week began with the three presidential candidates holding their only televised debate, although the presentations did turn into debates, but we won't argue that issue. And along with cross-strait relations and national security, the debate gave one candidate an opportunity to slam media outlets that he deemed unfriendly towards him. Now, President Tsai Ing-wen, the KMT's Hang Yu, and People First Party candidate James Sung all defended their approaches to dealing with China and its military threat and also touted their plans to defend the island and the status quo. Now, very briefly, President Tsai Ing-wen said her administration has been working to keep normal exchanges with China without making provocative or risky moves and that the real problem is Beijing because it's trying to turn cross-strait relations into a political chip. Now, Han Guoyu said Taiwan must maintain the status quo and any change in that situation in the future has to be approved by the Taiwanese people in a democratic manner. While James Sung agreed with Han's approach to avoid war, adding that Taiwan should both develop its own weapons and buy them 
from foreign countries, but he went on to say that the island maybe shouldn't lean too closely towards the United States. Now, that was the nitty-gritty, but the debate also saw the KMT presidential candidate use the um, platform to seek to take aim at the Apple Daily, and he blasted the Apple Daily newspaper for what he called its tabloid nature, and he accused its publishers of lacking standards and ethics, while he also accused the newspaper of double standards. Han also slammed San Lee E Television, accusing that channel of having no conscience and claiming that it's one of the main sources of the DPP's smear campaign against him, and he also took a shot of the state-owned CNA. So, Brian, there you go. They all dis- agree to disagree <laughs> on cross-strait ties and issues, but then one of them lost it completely and had a go at the media. That's right, and that did cause controversy because of the fact that Han uh, not only exploded at the editor-in-chief of the Apple Daily, um, he also, after the uh, end of the debate, he didn't actually want to engage with media outlets that were not friendly to him. This is shared online as this kind of viral uh, gif and so people are kind of discussing this, actually, just that this shows his undemocratic behavior and so forth. At the same time, I think this is actually Han is playing to his audience. Uh, he knows that his audience does actually view uh, the media as out to get him, that he is an underdog and so forth. And so making these kind of attacks publicly, that, that does kind of rile up his, his base. Um, so it's his strategy. But I think, again, just the debate follows the usual pattern of, uh, for example, Han and James Sung just attacking Tsai and offering very little in terms of policy. And Tsai discussing policy, but then just kind of this, the, there being these attacks just on her, um, which are sometimes just kind of smear attempts, I think, in, in themselves. It could also be um, because this debate is the first time that the media actually get to question the candidates. So in the past uh, policy presentations, they were actually a bit sheltered because they weren't actually directly questioned by any of the editors. And then when Han Guo was questioned about um, his transaction with with the lady, and then he just kind of flipped out and then said, and then actually asked, oh, are you going to ask about my virginity as well? And I think he just didn't know how to react to a real-life question from an editor from a major media outlet. And that kind of reflects on how he's going to respond if he gets elected. Um, when he responds to situations, he doesn't actually have any um, ability to answer questions eloquently. And that was also reflected in his city council meetings when he couldn't answer any of the questions asked by the legislators. And of course, you were talking about the mysterious Miss Wong there, Brian. The mystery, of course, Hannah's said, I didn't have anything to do with her. Mm-hmm. But of course, then the Apple Daily this week ran a story about how he went abroad with her. Um, that's so right. te- technically, one could argue the Apple Daily editor did ambush Hang Wu Yu because he obviously knew this story was coming. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Apple Daily is one of the media outlets in Taiwan that does report on a lot of sensationalist news. Um, they also operate paparazzi groups, actually, just through various parts of Taipei, even just to uh, catch any celebrities that might walk into, for example, Esleet um, and things like that. Um, so th- I think uh, Han is he maybe, I mean, attacking Apple Daily was because of the fact that Apple Daily does have his reputation. And so um, I also don't know if these allegations are true or not. It would not surprise me too much, given Han's uh, uh, kind of unorthodox behavior generally. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, it, he wrapped onto this point as a way to attack the media writ large, and I think that calling out, for example, Hans, uh, his property investments and his uh, possible corruption and things like that should be separate from this kind of uh, accusation against him for his personal life. And of course, there was the San Lee. He had a go at San Lee E Television, accused him of being the DPP's mouthpiece. Is San Lee E a DPP mouthpiece? Mm, <laughs> I think probably not. <laughs> um, but, but I think just again accusing any any media outlet that, that criticizes him of being a DPP mouthpiece that, that really does is again it it plays up to Han's base in their feelings of political persecution. Yeah, so I guess definitely if he becomes head of state, he's going to have to deal with a lot of media that don't like him. Right. Um, 
I think he's gonna deal with it like how Donald Trump deals with the media in the U.S. and just claims that everyone is having a witch hunt and everyone is just like probing about his personal life and then everything is inappropriate to ask. Um, yeah. Oh, oh dear. Yeah, that's one way to sideline discussion of policy as well. Just focus things on your personal life. And so uh, any accusation against you is about your personal life. Then you don't actually have to answer to any criticism about what you plan to do, actually, as a, as a politician. Right. Anyway, we'll stay with election news now. And ICRT spoke with representatives of the DPP and the KMT election campaigns this week. And we touched on several issues. But we'll begin with the DPP's incumbent lawmaker, Lin Ching Yi, speaking about how her party sees ties with the US and other countries. I think all everyone know now is the best conditions between the relations between Taiwan and the U.S. And we're really happy that we could cooperate in many important issues. So if we could win the elections in the further four years, we could have more cooperations, not only in security, but also in maybe some of the relations, agriculture, productions, and economics. And um, of course, at the same time, it's a, it's a very important um, choice that um, Taiwan, we want to go outside, only, not, we don't want to limit it only with the relations with China. We hope to be the friends with all the international society. So not only China, we will hope to open our mind, open our window to cooperate with international society. So, Brian, Lin Qingyi there talking about how the DPP will handle ties with the U.S. and other countries. Um, that's right. And so there's obviously an attempt to build stronger ties with the U.S. in order to counterbalance China and also to focus on, for example, building ties with Southeast Asian countries. Uh, I, this is not new policy of the DPP. I think um, against the KMT claims that uh, relations with China are needed. It's, it's not surprising the DPP would, would bring this forward. I mean, um, but the question then is, I think, maybe what about the Trump administration? The Trump administration is... Uh, known to flip-flop numerous times on key issues, including Taiwan or Hong Kong and so forth. And can the time mission actually uh, maintain stable relations with the Trump administration? That's also a question sometimes. I mean, the Trump Thai phone call was discussed a few years ago, but between now and then, there hasn't been too much uh, discussion of that. There is the perception that there's increasingly strong ties between the U.S. and Taiwan, but then that could also just be uh, thrown into jeopardy by a random tweet from Donald Trump, for example. Right, she did mention that um, Taiwan should look outward and not just look into China for um, increasing trade relations. Um, but that also doesn't have to mean that Taiwan has to rely on the U.S. Uh, what about Southeast Asia? And then like Indonesia and Vietnam are actually very hot markets right now, even for startups or any kind of manufacturing. And then a lot of um, Taiwanese startups are actually um, not looking into the U.S. to expand their business. They're looking into Southeast Asia or um, not even Hong Kong now because of the, the unrest going on there. But then is the DPP going to de- define their new Southbound policy better and how they're going to increase their um, trade with with um, countries like Vietnam or Thailand or Indonesia? Are they going to define it better and then um, not rely on big countries like the U.S. or China? I think, Brian, maybe Taiwan's in a bit of a rut when it comes to the U.S. It's sort of beholden to Washington. Um, I think it's really true, and I think that's true of larger historical tendencies. Um, but I think that in the past, what Taiwan could count on is is the U.S. would have some kind of consistent policy towards it. It wouldn't have so much flip-flops. And right now, I think what's visible in the Trump administration is there's so much internal splits. And so, um, I mean, I think it's, it's oftentimes in the media that... Uh, in Taiwanese media that the U.S. perceived homogeneously, that the, there's not a sense of splits between the U.S. State Department and Donald Trump himself, for example. But Tsai, well, she actually probably doesn't want to discuss that issue right now because the fact is she can't actually guarantee um, stable relations with Donald Trump and the State Department. 
Right, moving on now, we asked former Mainland Affairs Council Deputy Minister Zhao Jianming, who is serving as Hangwo Yu's Cross-Strait Affairs Division Head, about ties with China and how they are related to economic growth. Well, uh, we worry about really two things. Number one, cross-trade uh, tensions. Uh, if uh, cross-trade uh, cannot be put on a right track, uh, everything you know will be suppressed here in Taiwan. Economic development, national security, sovereignty, international agenda, nothing would get uh, going. So the number one uh, priority to me is that we should stabilize the situation and bring peace back. Once uh, the relationship is put on the right track, then uh, you know, then uh, we can we can expand uh, the second agenda. Of course, is economy, because uh, and also because of uh, the uh, relationship uh, with uh, China has not been uh, on the good terms. Uh, Taiwan's efforts uh, to to join the international economic uh, integration process has been thwarted. So once the uh, cross-trade relationship has has been restored, we will be able to, you know, bring in more uh, tourists from China. We might be able to uh, sign a free trade agreement with China, our biggest market, uh, counting for forty percent of our exports. And hopefully we can join the important international economic uh, free trade zones such as, uh, you know, RCEP and so on. So, Brian, there we go, former MAC Deputy Minister Zhao Jianming on how Hangwa Yu's going to cope with economic ties in China. Anything predictable there or pretty much what you expected? I think it's pretty much what I would expect from a KMT politician. Um, again, just claiming that Taiwan's economy is reliant on China and that this is actually the way to have a stable economic growth. I mean, it's true the Chinese market is huge and it's next door and it does share the same language with, as Taiwan and so it's easier to do business with China. But I mean, I think that then doesn't account for, for example, the economic slowdown in China. The fact that if you do business uh, at this point in time, even just you, you do actually face dangers. Even just accurate reporting on financial information in China, you could possibly be persecuted for that at this point. And so there are definitely risks there and I think that's not what is addressed. Yeah, actually trade with China has also decreased um, in the past year. Um, because of the tension and then because of the trade war. So the Taiwan's trade with the U.S. actually increased for about 30% in the past two years alone. So is Taiwan really dependent on China for trade? Probably not. And maybe Taiwan is missing all the opportunities out there by focusing on China. Because, of course, what Zhao said was the first thing they'll do is make a rapport with China and then trade can kick off. Do you see that happening, Brian? It's a question. I mean, I think if a KMT administration took power, then China might actually reevaluate trade policy towards Taiwan as a sign of good faith to prop up the KMT. But if it's a DPP president, of course not. And so this is, I think, what the KMT is backing on again in order to benefit its electoral chances. Do we have another ECFA? Um, yeah, that's right. And that's something that Han has claimed, too, that there's a need for another ECFA. I mean, that provoked such panic back in the day uh, when ECFA was passed. And so... He is actually banking on that idea despite the controversy. And so it's interesting that KMT is still highly reliant on um, economic ties with China, political ties with China, and the claim that's only a party in Taiwan able to maintain this in order to justify its uh, grabbing political power. Now, we also spoke to both the campaign spokespersons about their party's plans to boost English language efficiency here in Taiwan, with the DPP's Lin Ching Yi saying... 
That is important.、Um, I think our vice president candidate、uh, Lai Qingde had actually he have he is the first one to do the bilanguage in Tainan City, and、uh, um, I think we have some very important missions, especially in the rural and、uh, um, urban. Um, we need to improve the gap between the rural and、uh, um, the urban area in the in the language, so that、um, we need to promote more、um, resources to the rural area in the language. And another very important things for here is um, um, for us, especially for young generations, the language study, especially English.、Um, we need more.、Um, How to say that we need have more benefit and, and more comfort that we could use the language to connect with another countries. But also, I think we talk sometimes we talk about fake news. The fake news informations or fake news、um, the effect actually is another issue that because、um, only Taiwan and China we use Mandarin, so we if we, our populations could have more easier to use English, it's more easier. To To、um, broken the、uh, barrier of informations, they could to get more real informations from another countries, especially English、um, countries. For example,、um, the trade war between U.S. and China in Taiwanese populations, the young generations have more easier understand what happened within these issues. But、uh, some senior generations, they are difficult to understand about that, and all their news、uh, resources depending on some very、um, typical or very、um, single、uh, the news channel. So they were given very wrong information from there. So that is why I think.、Um, In the、um, English or more ability in bi-、uh, bilingual language, the、uh, ability is very important for our populations to first to have more informations about the、um, the balance or more um, um, important from another countries, and second,、um, we will have more opportunity to cooperate with another countries, especially in industrial economic activities. Um, yeah, and so I think it's interesting that both political parties claim that there's the need to make English a second official language to internationalize Taiwan in that way.、Um, this is something that even Han claims is necessary, despite the the general KMT claim that、uh, closer relations with China are necessary.、Um, the question then is that what are the actual steps that will be taken in order to ensure、uh, that English education is promoted in Taiwan? I mean, you already do have a large number of of cram schools, and、uh, it is taught in schools and so forth. But how, what will the, what will the actual concrete steps Be taken to、uh, make English widespread、uh, used in a widespread manner.、Um, for example, just, will you actually have to introduce English on all official documents?、Um, will you standardize use of English、uh, in different parts of different sectors of government? For example, that's that's something that's a bigger question. Concrete policy, I just don't know about. Yeah, the government actually claimed that they want to make Taiwan a bilingual country by 2030, and then recently they actually scrapped. The the deadline. So I think they kind of realize that it's not very plausible to turn Taiwan into something、um, international as they have seen before. And is education itself enough? Because if you are just teaching kids and then it's just textbook English, but if you're not actually fostering a for- foreigner-friendly environment or an international vibe to Taiwan, then kids are still just learning English from the textbook. But are they actually ingrained in the English-speaking environment? Probably not. And right now, all the government websites or even tourism information is not very foreigner friendly, and is that makes Taiwan not very accessible to English speakers as well. So 
in a in a sense, Taiwan is still a very sheltered country that's not very receptive to foreigners. And is that gonna and like in addition to education, is that something the government also needs to look at into making Taiwan a bilingual country? And of course, now Hang Yu's spokesman or member of his cross-strait team, Zhao Jianming, had this to say about what Han's government would do to improve English efficiency here. So Mayor Han would like to, uh, in the future, if uh, again, if uh, he is uh, elected uh, into the office, uh, he would uh, promote uh, immediately uh, bilingual education starting from primary uh, schools, uh, which uh, we, we think it's, uh, it's a really good policy. And on top of that, for college students, when they reach the uh, junior uh, uh, year, the third year in their uh, four-year college life, the government will be responsible for to you know to give them subsidies, so that they will be able to uh, to uh, to study overseas in especially in English uh, cultural uh, background countries uh, for up to one year. And this is uh, extremely important for us uh, to expand our uh, young uh, students' uh, uh, internationalization. Furthermore, for civil servants, we further propose that uh, for, uh, for uh, civil servants uh, aged between 30, 25 to 45, we would uh, again uh, provide the funds so that you know, a huge number of uh, civil servants uh, in the range of uh, maybe 3,000 to 4,000 a year will be able to refresh them, uh, themselves uh, overseas uh, in a study plan for also up to one year. So if you put this all together from uh, primary school education to college education to civil servant uh, training, it's a very, very complete program for internationalization. We are very excited about this. So, Brian, of course, Mr. Zhao there talking about how he wouldn't start English language school learning at an elementary school level, but start in primary school and then also give funding to older students and even civil servants to travel abroad to improve their English. Mm. And I kind of do wonder where the money comes from, uh, will come from in that regard. But the claim for Han is that this will benefit uh, grad students, for example, to have them travel abroad and internationalize their perspectives. Um, and then in terms of, uh, I mean, it, that, it's, the, the KMT in the past criticized the idea of introducing English as a second official language by claiming that this would dilute from language learning. And so this is why I think um, uh, there's a claim that maybe English education should start later. Uh, this, versus the DPP's claims regarding maybe starting English education earlier. Um, at the same time, it is actually, I think, a, a shift in the in the KMT kind of rhetoric that English education does need to be promoted. Uh, Han himself is someone that has scoffed at for his uh, poor English abilities, despite being an English major, for example. Um, and so that's... And 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 he, uh, I think he's actually in this case just trying to mimic DPP policy now by claiming that introducing English language will be something beneficial for Taiwan and its international outlook. And of course, Daphne, as I said... Mr. Zhao, he concentrated on giving civil servants money to travel abroad, while the DPP candidate, or the DPP spokesperson, rather, said basically, well, we hope to take it to outside areas, remote areas, where people need to learn English. So what do you think is more important, to pay civil servants to go abroad and have a good old time in London? There you go, what an example. <laughs> or to help people in the mountainous areas learn English, which they might need if they go to the big city somewhere. Yeah, I think I have a lot of Taiwanese friends and co-workers who went to study abroad in the UK or in the US when they're an adult and they go they go there to study for a year or two and then they come back with actually no improvement in the English. So I think like spreading the, the education to more rural areas and actually lifting the Taiwanese population from 
a very young age, that would be more useful than just sending some graduate student overseas for a year, and they probably don't even mingle well with、um, the local culture wherever they're going, and then they'll just probably waste a year there and not sure what they actually learned. And does that really internationalize their perspective in just one year? I think a lot of Taiwanese who have studied abroad can tell you that it doesn't. But the remote, the remote and rural education actually, like, the the government is trying so hard to like put more resources into educating those kids that might not be、uh, well incorporated into the society, and they should also deserve、um, better education in English as well. So that if like in the future they want a chance to go to work in a big city, they have that option too. Right, and we have to take a short break now, but we'll be right back after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan this week, and fake news continues to be a major talking point here in Taiwan. It's also in the news a lot, as the elections are only a week away now. And I spoke with Cedric Alviani, the director of Reporters Without Borders Taipei Bureau, about the issue and how his group is looking to help tackle it here in Taiwan. Good evening, Cedric. Good evening, Kevin. So, obviously, your group, Reporters Without Borders, recently sent a letter to the candidates and the parties running in this election about fake news and the dangers thereof. So, what did this letter say? Well, a few days before the presidential elections, everybody is worried that、uh, fake news attacks coming from China could、uh, potentially destabilize the elections and impact on its results. In that open letter, we have sent to the、uh, candidates and the parties.、Uh, we are stressing on the fact that the only way for Taiwan to efficiently protect from fake news is to strengthen journalism. Because the very big problem in Taiwan is not that there isn't regulation punishing for fake news circulation. The problem is that journalism. Is weak, and in many cases,、uh, the filter that journalists uh, should do uh, does not work, so that fake news are, are able to spread in the、uh, regular media. Right. Of course, Twitter Taiwan and Facebook Taiwan are also taking action to stop the spread of fake news. I mean, how, could, how well do you think they'll do this? Well. There's two ways to act against disinformation. The first way, which is the one everybody thinks immediately, is to stop, block fake news, censor. The problem is that it doesn't work. After fake news started circulating, it's too late to try and block them, and punishing the authors or punishing the people who circulated them also comes too late. So the only way is to upgrade quality contents and make sure that quality journalistic. Quality informative content appear first, and for that, there's only one way.、Uh, you have to have strong media, and you have strong media ethics, and you must have a, the possibility for journalists in the Taiwanese media to properly enforce these standards of ethics. And so far, this is the major problem in Taiwan. I mean, some could argue that, of course, the media, especially newspapers, have always been biased one way or the other in virtually the whole world. 
this is, of course, normal that a media could have a different sensitivity, a bit more conservative, a bit more uh, progressive. This is not a problem. The problem is when it goes to uh, uh, disseminating uh, non-verified information. And unfortunately, in many cases, the Taiwanese media uh, do not allow journalists to do the proper verification. So it is okay to have... Uh, more green or more blue sensitivity, it is not okay to uh, distribute contents or to distribute a piece of news uh, without proper verification just because it sounds like um, in the proper editorial line of the media. Ryan, has your group spoken to local media groups and outlets about this issue? Well, we believe the uh, problem cannot be solved uh, by local media groups themselves. The whole environment of journalism in Taiwan needs some uh, proper fixing. We do not ask for the authorities or for the parties to control what the media are writing. We are asking them to make the proper regulatory moves so that journalists could uh, work with the proper independence and that they could uh, properly enforce ethics. And is Reporters Without Borders monitoring the local media regularly in the run-up to the election? Yes, of course, we're monitoring the media. And uh, we uh, believe that in many cases there could be a stronger standards of ethics. And that was me in conversation with Reporters Without Borders Taipei Bureau Director Cedric Alviani. Now, in pollution news, which we, of course, have an abundance of here in Taiwan on a daily basis, even on day three of the new year. Now, environmental groups braved a cold, wet and rainy day in Taipei last Sunday to rally against air pollution. And they called on the government and incoming and outgoing lawmakers to take steps to counter it and to take measures against climate change. The rally was co-organised by more than a dozen environmental groups and it drew the participation of members of several political parties and also the vice presidential candidates from both the DPP and the KMT addressed the rally outside the offices of the Environmental Protection Administration before it began. Now, that kicked off the week, and on Thursday of this week, the Air Clean Taiwan Environmental Group released its annual report on the most polluted of the island's cities and counties. And Gao Xiong won the Environmental Group's somewhat dubious title of being known as Taiwan's most polluted city or county for the third consecutive year. That, after recording an average PM 2.5 value of 26 6.1 micrograms per cubic metre of bad air in 2019. Pingdong County ranked second most polluted, followed by Jai and Tainan City, and Jingmen rounded out the top five. So there we go, Brian. Oh, another thing I've got... Oh, hang on a minute. I've got to put this in there just in case you're interested in the figures, Brian. The report this year by Air Clean Taiwan found that the average PM 2.5 value for all of Taiwan measured 19.8 micrograms in 2019. Um, that's right. And so air pollution is one of the problems which is perceived as increasing worsening, worsening in Taiwan. And so this becomes a talking point in elections. What should Taiwan's energy depend on? And the KMT has historically claimed that this should be nuclear energy. And this is also true of the Han administration, claiming that nuclear energy is environmentally friendly. Uh, that is the way to not have these problems with air pollution, which come from burning fossil fuels and coal and so forth. Uh, but then there's the obvious controversy, then nuclear energy, where do you put the nuclear waste? And there's the possibility of seismic activity causing something like the Fukushima disaster in Taiwan. 
And so it's interesting that actually both the KMT and the DPP candidates uh, appeared at this this rally, for example. Um, the KMT, I mean, Han, during the presidential debate, he claimed that solar and wind energy were strange, and that these were strange forms of energy that the Thai administration was investing resources in, and this was a waste. Um, and so it's actually, it's ironic then to have a KMT candidate appear there. At the same time, the DPP, uh, in terms of it's actually a concrete policy to um, ensure that solar wind energy become uh, more widespread and to phase out nuclear energy. This is actually, I think, somewhat still ill-defined. And though the, the the DPP has actually restarted nuclear reactors in the past, and it has uh, it claims that it will phase out nuclear energy eventually, but this is actually long term enough in the future that uh, this would be after the science mission leaves office. And so, I think both sides actually need much more concrete policy. Yeah, and in Kaohsiung, actually, a lot of the pollution has come from uh, petrochemicals. And the government has not even set up any screening sites um, as the easiest thing to do. And they're not tracking air pollutants actually as closely as they should. So if the government is not even willing to do a simple step like that, would they actually go beyond and above to solve the air pollution problem in Kaohsiung and other areas? So maybe the first step is not even to talk about whether we should keep doing nuclear energy or invest in other energy plants, but are we supposed to be tracking the citizens' health condition under these kind of pollutions already? Mm-hmm. And what's interesting, Brian, of course, is, of course, during the local elections, the Taijong mayor, KMT mm-hmm. Yen, she made a great play of the pollution as one of her main policy platforms. But we've heard, you know, the KMT heading up to the presidential election haven't really made great hay of it. Um, that's right. And that seems to be one of the reasons why the Syrian's popularity is actually falling in title. Despite making all these promises about uh, reducing air pollution, she has not actually been able to do this. It's sort of been outside of control. Um, but it's also actually very interesting, too, because in the way that environmental issues become a talking point in voting, uh, air, problems of air pollution were actually getting better in Taichung when Rousseau was elected. And this was actually seen by uh, many as, as Taichung voters punishing the DPP for failing to um, fix problems of air pollution. But in truth, when you look at the statistics, things were actually getting better. It's just that this was not perceived by the public. And so that's why the, perhaps people felt the need to uh, punish the DPP by voting in a KMT mayor. And so then that's another question entirely, actually, just the way people feel environmental conditions and what is statistically true are not always the same thing. And this may be similar to how, for example, the economy has increased on the Tsai administration, but people have not felt this because of the fact that uh, salaries have not increased. And so this is, this is another uh, interesting point about elections, actually. Sometimes offering statistics, uh, both sides will offer their own set of statistics. And so then the voters, who do they believe? Sometimes they actually don't believe the correct set of statistics. And before we go this week, local coffee chain Mr. Brown confirmed that it's closing eight of its 46 branches here in Taiwan. And the company says it's basically closing them down due to lacklustre sales and expiring leases. And apparently it'll affect stores in Taipei and New Taipei City. Of course, Mr. Brown launched its famous or rather infamous canned coffee products in 1982 before opening its line of cafes in 1998. Now, news of the closures comes as Starbucks has also closed several stores over the past year and local coffee chain Louisa is bucking the trend, however, and has apparently opened branches at more locations island-wide over the past 12 months. So, Brian, what's happening to the coffee shop trend and have the convenience stores simply taken over with their rather cheap NAF coffee? <laughs> well, I, I drink primarily convenience store coffee, but I think maybe I'm the exception to that. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think that just uh, it's for coffee brands, it's just how to keep on top of trends. Uh, old, Mr. Brown is just seen as maybe too old-fashioned. And even Starbucks, despite its global reach, is also just uh, seen as not having, for example, embraced uh, 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 bean source from, for example... 
various locations across the world offering a variety um, at an affordable price. And so, you know, in the past, I think when Starbucks entered the Taiwanese market, it was seen as almost prestigious that you could go and hang out in the Starbucks and it's a fancy Western brand. But I think that Starbucks has not managed to retain that kind of prestige. Yeah, I've lived in Taipei for almost a year and I actually don't know about Mr. Brown or it hasn't registered in my brain and maybe that's why they're closing down. And Starbucks, I feel like it just doesn't fit with um, Taipei's or Taiwan's coffee culture in general. Um, Starbucks works very well in the U.S. because it's grab and go. And it somewhat just feels like a 7-Eleven of coffee anyway. But then Taiwanese actually care about sitting down for a coffee and spending time with your friends or just being in a coffee shop for three hours and just reading a book. And even if you want to grab a coffee to go uh, before you go to work, you might not you might not just go to Starbucks or, or 7-Eleven because there are so many options just around the neighborhood. And now Louisa is actually offering pretty good coffee um, at probably $50, $60. And that's very competitive. Um, so the coffee shop trend, I think, is like leaning more and more towards like good quality coffee at a more affordable prices. Um, so Starbucks closing seems to make sense to me. But Mr. Brown, you don't know Mr. Brown. How can you not know Mr. Brown? <laughs> That's why they're closing. <laughs> oh, dear. Mr. Brown, there we go. They own, the, the same group owns Cavalan Whiskey. So it's King Car. Yeah, yeah. Oh. So do you think maybe they should move away from Mr. Brown and start a whiskey shop so you can go and buy a shot of whiskey like a coffee shop? How's that work? Well, don't Italians have, like... Espresso with like a shot or something in it in the morning. So there you go, Brian. Yeah, that's what they get introduced, I think. Yeah, um, whiskey coffee. Yeah, to go. Like a great idea. I mean, Brian is their audience. Anyway, that's where we'll leave it here on Taiwan this week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Good night. And Daphne Lee. Good night. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.